the female erotic brain is full of such surprises. Dutch researchers used positron emission tomography, PET, to scan the brains of 13 women and 11 men in the throes of orgasm. While the brevity of the male orgasm made reliable readings difficult to get, the heightened activity they found in the secondary somatosensory cortex associated with genital sensation was what they'd expected. But the woman's brains left the researchers befuddled. It seems the female brain goes into standby mode at orgasm. What little increase in cerebral activity in Lace's brains exhibited was in the primary somatosensory cortex, which registers the presence of sensation, but not much excitement about it. Quote, in women, the primary feeling is there, one of the researchers said, but not the marker that this is seen as a big deal. For males, the touch itself is all important. For females, it is not so important. Every woman knows her menstrual cycle can have profound effects on her eroticism. Spanish researchers confirmed that women experience greater feelings of attractiveness and desire around ovulation, while others have reported that women find classically masculine faces more attractive during ovulation, opting for less chiseled looking guys who are not fertile. Since the birth control pill affects the menstrual cycle, it's not surprising that it may affect a woman's patterns of attraction as well. Scottish researcher Tony Little found women's assessment of men as potential husband material shifted if they were on the pill. Little thinks the social consequences of his finding may be immense. Where a woman chooses her partner while she is on the pill and when comes off it to have a child, her hormone-driven preferences have changed and she may find it she is married to the wrong kind of man. Little cons Little's concern is not misplaced. In 1995, Swiss biological researcher Klaus Wedekind published the results of what is now known as the sweaty t-shirt experiment. He asked women to sniff t-shirts men had been wearing for a few days with no perfumes, soaps, or showers. Wedekind found that in subsequent research has confirmed that most of the women were attracted to the scent of men whose major histocompatibility complex, MHC, differed from her own. This preference make, makes genetic sense in that the MHC, the major histocompatibility complex, indicates the range of immunity to various pathogens. Children born of parents with different immunities are likely to benefit from a broader, more robust immune response themselves. The problem is that women taking birth control pills don't seem to know, don't seem rather to show the same responsiveness to these male scent cues. Women who were using birth control pills chose men's t-shirts randomly or even worse, showed a preference for men with similar immunity to her own. Consider the implications. 
Many couples meet when the woman is on the pill. They go out for a while, like each other a lot, and then decide to get together and have a family. She goes off the pill, gets pregnant and has a baby. But her response to him changes. There's something about him she finds irritating, something she hadn't noticed before. Maybe she finds him sexually unattractive, and the distance between them grows. But her libido is fine. She gets flushed every time she gets close enough to smell her tennis coach. Her body, no longer silenced by the effects of the pill, may now be telling her that her husband, still the great guy she married, isn't a good genetic match for her. But it's too late. They blame it on the work pressure, the stress of parenthood, each other. Because this couple inadvertently short-circuited an important test of biological compatibility, their children may face significant health risks ranging from reduced birth weight to impaired immune function. How many couples in this situation blame themselves for having failed somehow? How many families are fractured by this common tragic undetected sequence of events? Psychologist Richard Lipa teamed up with BBC to survey over 200,000 people of all ages from all over the world concerning the strength of their sex drive and how it affects their desires. He found the same inversion of male and female sexuality. For men, both gay and straight, higher sex drive increases the specificity of their sexual desire. In other words, a straight guy with a higher sex drive tends to be more focused on women, while higher sex drive in a gay guy makes him more intent on men. But with women, at least nominally straight women, the opposite occurs. The higher her sex drive, the more likely she'll be attracted to men and women. Lesbians show the same pattern as men. A higher sex drive means more women only focus. Perhaps this explains why nearly twice as many women as men consider themselves bisexual, while only half as many consider themselves to be exclusively gay. Those who claim this just means men are more likely to be repressing some universal human bisexuality. We'll have to consider sexologist Michael Bailey's fMRI scans of gay and straight men's brains while they viewed pornographic photos. They reacted to men tend they reacted as men tend to do, simply and directly. The gay guys liked the photos showing men with men, while the straight guys were into the photos featuring women. Bailey was looking for activation of the brain regions associated with inhibition. To see whether his subjects were denying a bisexual tendency, no dice. Neither gay nor straight men showed unusual activation of these regions while viewing the photos. Other experiments using subliminal images have generated similar results. Gay men, straight men, and lesbians all responded to as predicted by their stated sexual orientation. While nominally straight women, I contain multitudes, unquote unquote, responded to just about everything. This is just how we are wired, not the result of repression or denial. Of course, signs of repression aren't hard to find in sex research. There's plenty. 
For example, one of the long-standing mysteries of human sexuality has been that heterosexual men tend to report having more sexual encounters and partners than heterosexual women do, a mathematical impossibility. Psychologists Terry Fisher and Michelle Alexander decided to take a closer look at people's claims regarding age of the first sexual experience, number of partners, and frequency of sexual encounters. Fisher and Alexander set up three different testing conditions. Number one, the subjects were led to believe their answers might be seen by the researchers waiting just outside the room. The subjects could answer number two, could answer the questions privately and anonymously. Number three, the subjects had electrodes placed on their hand, arm, and neck, believing themselves falsely to be hooked up to a lie detector. Women who thought their answers might be seen reported an average of 2.6 sexual partners, all the subjects were college students younger than 25. Those who thought their answers were anonymous reported 3.4 partners, while those who thought their lies would be detected reported an average of 4.4 partners. So, while women admitted to 70% more sexual partners when they thought they couldn't fib, the men's answers showed almost no variation. Sex researchers, physicians, and psychologists, and parents need to remember that women's answers to such questions may depend on when, where, and how the questions is asked, as well as who's asking. If it's true that women's sexuality is much more contextual than most men's, we might need to reconsider a lot of what we think we know about female sexuality. In addition to the distortions created by the age bias we discussed earlier, our 20-year-old represent, representative? How useful are the responses of women answering questions in a cold classroom in a laboratory setting? How would our understanding of female sexuality be different if George Clooney distributed the question nayers by candlelight and collected them after a glass of wine in a jacuzzi? Sexologist Lisa Diamond spent over a decade studying the ebb and flow of female desire. In her book, Sexual Fluidity, she reports that many women see themselves as attracted to specific people rather than to their gender. Women in Diamond's view responded to so strongly to emotional intimacy that their innate gender orientation can easily be overwhelmed. Shivers agrees. Women physically don't seem to differentiate between genders in their sexual response. At least, heterosexual women don't. Apparently, many women see the Mona Lisa looking back at them from the mirror. What are the practical effects of this crucial difference in erotic plasticity? To start with, we'd expect to find far more transitory, situational bisexual behavior among women than among men. Various studies of heterosexual couples engaging in group sex or swinging agree that it is common for women to have sex with other women in these situations, but that men almost never engage with men. Additionally, while we'd be the last to suggest popular culture is a reliable indicator of innate human sexuality, it's probably significant that women kissing women was, has quickly become accepted as mainstream behavior, while depictions of men kissing each other on television or films remains unusual and controversial. 
Most women presumably wake up the morning after their first same-sex erotic experience, more interested in finding some coffee than in conducting a panicked reassessment of their sexual identity. The essence of sexuality for most women seems to include the freedom to change as life changes around them. There is, after all, a liberating simplicity in Mona Lisa's complexity which Freud seems to have missed. The answer to his question couldn't be simpler yet contains multitudes. What does woman want? It depends.